Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. The Gospel of John chapter 9. This chapter, John sets forth an unnamed man who is the central character. It's a long chapter, 41 verses. We're not going to look at all 41 verses. But it illustrates very well one of the themes of John, which is the contrast between darkness and light. For example, in John chapter 1, In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Or John 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. We're going to be looking at one particular verse, although I'm going to illustrate it by the opening verses of the chapter, and I'll comment on that in just a moment. But let me read for you the first uh, verses of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. When I was a teenage boy, on Monday nights there used to be a gathering of uh, young boys in a man's ha house, and we had a, sang some hymns and we had a Bible study. And one night... It was announced that the next Monday night, Bob Davenport, All-American football player at UCLA, was going to come and give his testimony. And I thought, that, that was great. I was really excited about that, as were my fellow boys in that group. And so sure, the night, the night came, and it was exciting, and Bob Davenport was there. It wasn't as big as I thought he would be. But he shared his testimony. He gave his testimony. I want you to think about that this morning as we look at some parts of this ninth chapter of, here, of uh, John. Notice the first verse. This blind man, Jesus saw him. 
His eyes focused upon this particular individual. Now his disciples responded in verse 2, which was what was typical in those days, that um, it was felt theologically that some particular sin must have happened to that person, either by himself or by his parents, to bring about this blindness. So Jesus immediately clarifies the matter, says, no, that's not the reason. The reason is that God will work something and display himself in this world. And then he mentions the I am the light of the world. And then he performs this very interesting miracle. Very unusual one, is it not? Spitting into the ground, uh, making the saliva, making a little mud. Then he goes over to the blind man and he puts it on his eyelids. And then he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, and you'll be able to see. And remarkably, this man, by the way, obeyed, and he did that very unusual thing. And sure enough, he came back seeing. Now, for our purposes this morning, at verse 8, things really begin to get interesting. Note the remarkable reactions to this man's remarkable healing. He was blind, now he could see. And so they came to him, and they, they were a little puzzled. Isn't this the man that used to sit and beg? And some people said, it, it's him. But others said, well, we're not so sure. He seems to be like him, but it can't possibly be that man. He kept saying, well, I'm, I'm the man. Well, how were your eyes open? Well, the man Jesus told me to make this, put mud on my eyes, and he told me to wash in the pool of Siloam. I went, and I came back, and I could see. Where is this man? I don't know. Well, when you run across obstacles like that, the best thing to do is to drag the guy over to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, see if they can handle this unusual situation. So verse 13, that's what they do. But it happened that Jesus did this on the Sabbath day. And if the Pharisees were very concerned about anything, it was keeping that Sabbath down to the minutest details with all their man-made rules about it. So that disturbed them. That's what really was driving them in their conversation with this blind man. So in verse 15, they asked him, how did you receive your sight? And so he again explained what happened. Notice the reaction of the Pharisees in verse 16. This man, Jesus, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, wait a minute now. How can a man who is a sinner, breaking the Sabbath, do such signs? There's a division among them. So they approach the blind man again and say, what do you say about him, about Jesus? Since he's opened your eyes. And now he says, he's a prophet. Somehow this blind man was so impressed with what happened that he, this man has to be a special prophet of God. Well, now what? What are they going to do? Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man. So they meet with the parents, the mom and dad, and they ask him, them, is, is this your son, the one who was born blind, you say? And how does he now see? So his parents, I think very honestly, 
didn't answer. We know that this is our son, that he was born blind. How he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. That would be a natural thing for them to say. They didn't know exactly what had happened. but They recognized him as his son. But they had another reason why they answered that way. And John gives us that in verses 22 and 23. Because they feared the Jews. Because the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to put out of the synagogue. That was a terrible thing to experience that. So therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so that now brings us to the particular verse that I want to focus on the rest of our time. Verse 24. So for the second time, they, the Pharisees, called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, we know it's Jesus, is a sinner. By implication, he has desecrated the Sabbath. That's all they could think about. Notice the answer in verse 25. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. One thing I do know. That once I was blind, now I see. Let's take a look at those words right there at the end of verse 25. His testimony. What is a testimony? It's acknowledging uh, something that you have seen or heard. You view a, or hear about a, a, an automobile crash. You turn around, you see what's happening there. And the policeman comes over and says, did you see what happened? Yes, I did. Well, what happened? You give your testimony to the police officer. Or suppose you have gone to a music concert of some sort. People learn about that and say, tell us a little bit about it. And so you give your testimony about being there, what the music was, what they played, what they sang, how many people were there, what the atmosphere was like, and so forth. Testimony is a word that's come to apply to a believer, a Christian, telling what Jesus Christ has done for him or her. And so let's learn a couple of principles about giving a testimony this morning from what the blind man says. First of all, he had an assurance. I know his confidence was focused on one undeniable fact. Though I was blind at one time, now I see. There were some things he did not know. He didn't know that day that Jesus of Nazareth was going to stop and talk to him and touch him and perform this miracle. He didn't know that. He didn't even know exactly who Jesus was. Called him the man called Jesus. At the beginning of verse number 11, the man called Jesus, that's what he refers to there. Now look at the end of verse 17. He is a prophet. We already noticed that. So in verse 12, they, they asked him, Well, where, uh, where is he? I don't know. So this man doesn't know very much, does he, about Jesus? But he knew one thing. Once I was blind, now I can see. 
the end of verse 24, the Pharisees had said to him, we know that this man you're talking about that supposedly did this for you, he is a great sinner. In effect, this man's response to the Pharisees was this. I do not know in the way you say you know about it. You are learned men, supposedly with all the answers. I'm just a poor guy that lived in blindness. All I can tell you is, what I know is, I'm assured of this, now I see. Let's relate this now to today for those of you who are believers in Jesus. What do we learn about giving a testimony from this? There are many things you may not know about the Bible. You may still feel rather weak in your theology and your grasp of doctrine and teaching. And you start talking to certain people and you're, you can't remember, what, what did they say? What did the pastor say one time? And what did I learn in the Sunday school class? And I think I know the answer, but it's not coming to me right away. But surely you do know that you have experienced the gospel. You have recognized Jesus crucified and risen. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. You have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Can you have come into fellowship with the Son of God and not know that? Surely you know that. Way long before Christ, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. 2 Timothy 1, 12, I know, says Paul, I know who am I believed in. I'm persuaded that he is able to do that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know that. 1 John 3, 2. 3, 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. 1 John 3, 14. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We're comfortable with being with fellow believers. That's where I belong. I know that. So when it comes to giving your testimony, your faith is based on certain realities of the Word of God, accompanied and illuminated by the Holy Spirit. You have an assurance. Secondly, another aspect of this man's testimony is it was a personal experience, a personal assurance. Now it's a Say, well, that seems kind of repetitive, but I think we need to emphasize the personal aspect of your assurance in giving your testimony. The testimony was his. He didn't draw it from a common pool of knowledge from other people. No two experiences are alike among believers. If each of you right this moment could come up here and share your testimony, you find there's a great variety this man's testimony is quite different than that of blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, for example. So what he's saying is, I myself, the very person, look at me, Pharisees, look at me. I'm not speaking about somebody a thousand miles away, I'm not speaking of somebody over in the next town. I'm talking about me. I know. 
Somebody has called, someone has called this an heroic egotism, a grateful egotism, an egotism of pure sincerity and thankfulness for the blessing he's received. He's not ashamed of it. He's not scared to tell them of it because he knows it. Imagine if he had tried to describe the experience of someone else, if they had asked him, well, tell us what, what happened here. Well, enough about me. You don't want to hear about me. Let me tell you about so-and-so over here. Of course not. It would be ridiculous. He shared his own experience and assurance of it because he well remembered those many days of darkness and begging and groping and uncertainty and fear and helplessness. And then suddenly, he could see. Wow. It's interesting to uh, trace what he says here about seeing. And in verse 7, he went and washed, came back seeing. And in verse 11, he told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, received my sight. And in verse 15, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Go down to the end of verse 30. The man answered, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And of course, the end of verse 25, once I was blind, now I see. Can't you men see that I see? Why couldn't they? Why their response to this man's receiving sight? We'll go down to verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind like the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to them, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Without going into all the details of that, Jesus is confronting their hardened hearts. They just were refusing to believe what Jesus said, even what Jesus did. They weren't about ready to give in to that. So how do we apply this then? giving our testimony today. You have to remember that your testimony is your testimony, not mine, not the person sitting next to you, not your wife, not your husband, not your child, not your parent. It's yours. I know. This is what I know. Remember, the idea of personal witness is to affirm something is true. So you have to ask yourself, all right, what has Christ done for me? What do I know about it? Of what am I assured? That's your testimony as the occasion arises. Al Edwards was a longtime pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's, several years ago, he went to be with the Lord. But in a Presbyterian Guardian, a long time ago, I was attracted with this quotation. Witnessing or giving a testimony is very simply telling someone what we know to be true. It is not the using of clever, memorized arguments with the aim of persuading a person to become a Christian. In a law court, a witness does not try to argue with the judge 
or present clever, carefully memorized statements to try to persuade him to take a certain course of action. He simply tells the judge what he personally knows to be true. I know. One more thing about this man's brief testimony given to us in verse 25. He had an assurance. He knew something. He knew he could now see. It's a personal assurance. I know. It was a simple personal assurance. One thing. One thing I know. As I read through portions of this ninth chapter, we noticed several things he did not know. He was not ashamed to say that. I, I don't know. Where is he? I don't know. How did this happen? I don't know. Except kind of he somehow performed something, a miracle on me, and I can now see. A lot of things I don't know. There's nothing deeply profound or complex about what he said, is there? One thing I know, once I was blind, now I can see. Yet it kept him from getting sidetracked in some useless argument with the Pharisees and enabled them, him to rebuke fear, fearlessly the unbelieving Pharisees. You have to admire this guy. He's standing up to these religious leaders because he was so sure in the heart of what had happened, he knew he could see. He was a forerunner of, Paul, of uh, Peter and John in Acts 4.20. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. You can put us in jail if you want to, but we're not going to go back upon what we saw and heard about Jesus. In 1 John 1, 3, John writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. Suppose you are involved, probably at times many of you have been involved, with an atheist, with an agnostic, with a, an infidel, a skeptic, a clever person who can talk and ring around, ring the, put rings around you quite easily with his argumentation. Maybe an obnoxious family member. You get into an argument with them, questioning your faith, your Christianity, and so forth. Now, of course, you do your best you can to deal with their arguments and in a very gracious way to deal with these kinds of people. But when all else fails, you feel like you're floundering around. One thing I know, once I was blind, now I can see. Someone has said that an ounce of testimony is worth a pound of propaganda. Keep in mind, this man was not yet fully converted. Surely he is on the way. But that won't happen until you get down to verse 35. Jesus heard that they, the Pharisees, had cast them out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That seems to have been the kind of the critical moment which you would say that's when he was converted, 
but don't you see the Spirit in them working in his heart and life, giving him this wonderful testimony before the Pharisees. Notice the growth in his testimony. Back in verse 7, he had said, Jesus had responded to him, and he, he washed and came back seeing. He did that. He obeyed. Then in verses 11 and 12, he acknowledged Jesus had done this miracle. He didn't know where he was. But then in verse, then in verse 17, he's a prophet. Okay, he's growing in his faith. Verse 25, once I was blind, but now I see. Verse 27, I told you already you would not listen. Why do you want want to hear it again? You also want to become his disciples. So he's kind of acknowledging, I'm his disciple now. I'm learning from him. And on and on we go through this chapter. We see wonderful growth. Go down to verse 30. The man answered, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. You guys are supposed to be the, the people who know it all. How come I have to deal with this? How come you don't understand this? And so the Lord has been working in his heart in a wonderful way. He was getting more and more bold, wasn't he, as you go through this chapter. This guy's putting many of us to shame, the way he's making a stand for his commitment to Jesus Christ. As John writes these words with some irony and sarcasm, he seems to be enjoying himself with this little banter going back and forth with this man and the Pharisees. Someone said that thankfully this man got his mouth open and not just his eyes. So how does this apply to giving a testimony today? In giving your testimony, it's not the time, nor the place, nor the method, nor the process of your conversion. It's the fact that a change has taken place in your life. I alluded earlier this morning to William Cooper, converted in an insane asylum while reading the Bible. Charles Wesley also had a remarkable conversion experience. And having had the opportunity to be in some of your homes or talk with some of you, there are some of you, some of you who later in your life have come to know the Lord and have expressed and shared with me some wonderful things that you learned from the uh, fact that Christ came into your life and, and changed your life quite dramatically. Of course, there are others of you that were brought up in the church. But surely, you know what Jesus has done for you and continues to do for you. Let's sum it up this way. The Christian can say, I ain't what I ought to be. I ain't what I'm going to be. And I ain't what I was. There's your testimony right there. This is not to discount the fact that it might be good to do some things like, for example, write your little testimony out. It doesn't have to be long. Write it out. This is what Jesus did to me. This is when I first began to realize that I'm a sinner. This is when Christ touched my life and my life is beginning to change. Whatever it is, it's your testimony, write it out. It doesn't hurt to have a little gospel outline as simple as God is a holy God. We are sinners in rebellion against Him. 
He has provided a Savior for us, a Redeemer, and by faith alone, we may accept Him as our Lord and Savior, receive Him into our hearts and lives, and trust in Him and submit to Him. Something like that. There are different kinds of outlines that can be used. That's just a basic outline. Certainly there's no um, excuse for not learning the Bible more. And the more you know the Bible, the more you learn theology and doctrines, the easier it will be for you to deal with people who begin to discuss these matters with you. So it's good to do that. But it still boils down to when you give your testimony, you have an assurance, a personal assurance, and a simple personal assurance. One thing I know today, I know I was blind at one time because I was born with Adam's simple nature in my life. But now I see. But perhaps there are still some here this morning who are thinking this. I wish I had been converted later in life. I wish I had some kind of an exciting testimony to give. A life of great sin and rebellion. But you know, I grew up in a church with Christian parents. And I, ever since I can remember, I was aware of the Bible and where I was a sinner and so forth, and Jesus the Savior. I don't have any spectacular thing to share. So let me close reading these words of Dr. Peter Elsveld from a sermon he gave dealing with the Philippian jailer who fell down before Paul and Silas and said, Brothers, what must I do to be saved? And their answer was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He had given, he had given that sermon, and this quote comes from that sermon. There are friends of mine who often open a discussion by saying to me, Would you like to hear my personal testimony? And of course, I always tell them I certainly would. And they will tell me wonderful stories of the grace of God and how they were rescued spectacularly and dramatically out of a life of sin. Maybe in the middle of the years or maybe after a wasted youth. But you know, there's always one thing about it that bothers me. I get the uncomfortable feeling that somehow they think, oh, I'm kind of a second-rate Christian. I can't tell a story like that. I never had that kind of experience. And yet I don't feel like a second-rate Christian. That is why I want to tell my personal testimony to them. And it goes like this. I can put it in one sentence. I have never known a day in all my life when I could not believe that I was a child of God. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean I haven't been a great sinner. I have been as great as any and worse than many. I won't go into that. But I just want you to know that no matter how great the sins, there has never been a night in my life when I could not lay down my head and believe that God forgave my sins. My parents brought me up that way from the very earliest moments of my life. They brought me up to believe a promise, a covenant promise. They promised to me that their God would be my God even if it cost him the blood of his son. Maybe to you that isn't a spectacular story, but I think it is the most spectacular thing in the world. Not that a man in the middle of his years could suddenly come to this discovery, 
but that a man conceived and born in sin from the moment he draws his first breath can be aware of the gospel and have Christian parents who bring him to church? Do you know anything better than that? I wouldn't change places with the Philippian jailer who had to come to that later in his life. I'd rather have been one of his children. And I say that is something spectacular. So you see, whatever your conversion experience is, later in your life, you can remember a day and a time, or from the moment, you can go back as far as you can, you realize you were brought up understanding sin and Jesus, and you put your trust in Him, and you can say, you should be able to say, once I was blind, but now I see. I hope each of you in this room can say that in your hearts today. Join me in prayer. Our Father, how we thank you for your work in our hearts. You have brought us from our simple state into eternal life through Jesus. We look back upon the days and years of our lives. Some of us can remember very clearly where we were and what happened and when it happened when you touched us. Others, others of us are grateful that we grew up in Christian homes with Bible-believing churches. And so we give you our thanks and gratitude that although we were once blind, now we can see, we can understand who you are, and we love you and give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.